Welcome everybody, my name is Akanika and I'm glad to welcome you to another episode of Time Out with Akan. The last time we spoke about the Christian confession and we established some ground rules which was going to be a premise from what I'm going to share with us today. And part of the things we said was that confession in the Old Testament was the Shema and that was what the Jews recited and was part of their liturgy. These were comprised of three texts of scripture and all evolved about the reading, the understanding, the meditation, and the activity of God's word. The Jews were supposed to have God's word in visual perspective in their everyday life. And so God demanded of them that confession of faith those scriptures that teaches them who God was. Yeah, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, soul, and your strength. And, and so those scriptures were a part and parcel of what the Jews had as their confession of faith. We established also that in the New Testament, that the confession of faith took a dynamic turn it became focused on the person and the ministry of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And so we find out that in the New Testament, Jesus would say that whosoever will not confess me in public, I will not confess them before the angels of God. And so Jesus was specific about confessing him as Lord and a Messiah. Needless to say, a bulk of the persecution the early church faced was premised on their refusal, that is the church, the early church, to recant the confession of Jesus, the refusal of early church to recant the confession of Christ as Lord and Messiah. And we established also that Jesus did not just only instruct us to make the good confession, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Hold fast to eternal life when you made the good confession before many weaknesses. And that confession was made also by the Lord Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And so the confession that Paul demanded Timothy to hold fast to was a confession that Jesus himself made. So Jesus became our example of the good confession. Now, we know there are good confessions and there are bad confessions. Today, we're going to look a little bit about some of the bad confessions. But that's not how we're going to approach it. We're going to look at how the concept of confession evolved from the early church to our day. Is anything different? How did it evolve? Is anything that stands out? between the confession as we practice today and the confession that was practiced in the early church. In order to make a distinction between the way we use confession in our day and age as opposed to confession as taught in scripture or as opposed to confession as practiced in the New Testament or in the early church, I would like to call a contemporary Christian confession, as it were, pop confession. By pop, I refer to as popular confession. Indeed, it is popular. 
The question is, is it Christian? Is it biblical? And does it tally with what is being taught in scripture and what has been practiced for the better part of 2,000 years of biblical Christianity? When the apostolic age had moved on, the church began to experience a lot of influx of false teachers and false teachings. And so there came a need for formulating doctrinal, precise teaching about God, about Jesus, and about the work of salvation. And so the concept of creeds came to bear. Much of the early church's confession of faith, right through to the latter part of our century, was premised on the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrines of Christianity. We talk about the Apostle Creed, the Athanasius Creed. We also have um, things like the Westminster Confession. These are creeds and confessions that the church imbibed, the content of which was about depressing the character and the work of Christ as it relates to the church. Now, a lot of us know these creeds, particularly when we are much younger, but in our day and age, the things we hear as confessions fall way short of what we see in Scripture. And so, you find out that pop confession, as we see today, is starkly different from what we see in the Scripture or what we saw through the 2,000 years of church history through the creeds and the confessions. And how did pop confession come about? A lot of people may not know this, but lots of what we say today as I believe this, I receive this, I claim this, I grab it, all these are pop confessions. All these are confessions we call confession of faith, but I call it pop confession. And these things did not originate from the early church. It didn't originate from scripture. Much of this confession can be traced to the New Age philosophy of the 19th century and how that philosophy found its way through the church and in culture. It perversed the culture and permeated through the church. The New Age philosophy is syncretic in its nature. And by syncretic, I mean it adds or mixes or blends several kinds of truths or philosophies or religions. But it has centrally certain characteristics. One of the characteristics of the New Age philosophy is the focus on self. Things like the cult of self-affirmation, when people believe that man in himself is the architect of his destiny. In other words, you hear things like your decision determines destiny. You are the author of your future. And so there was this focus on man. So man began to look inward for power, for sustenance, and for a sense of affirmation. And so all these things were as a result of the New Age philosophy. And as usual, when things get popular in culture, they usually find their way into the church. And the way it found its way through the church was by um, the work of several people, people like Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. And so a lot of times these people began to imbibe these philosophies. And how did they imbibe these philosophies? Now, because the New Age philosophy sounds responsible or wise in a way, people begin to look to scripture 
to buttress these thoughts or this philosophy uh, without missing words, they found a lot of scriptures that seemed to buttress this philosophy. And so came the rise of the power of positive thinking and also the things that had to go with the word of faith movement. And all these things were an offshoot of the new age philosophy. Now, some people may not understand this, but it's important that we have a perspective of church history and now these things come to bear. Remember I said that throughout much of the 2,000 years of church history, the church believed in creeds and confessions that were strictly or predominantly doctrinal in nature and was focused on the person, the character, and the lordship of Jesus. I want to share with us five characteristics of pop confession. That way you know what I'm talking about. One of the first characteristics of pop confession, I like to say, is its focus on self, not Christ. Have you ever taken an audit of the things you confess lately? Has it always been, I believe I have this, I receive this, I name it, I claim it, nothing can touch me, nothing can go ahead of me. Now, you, you, you will always find out that a bulk of these confessions and much more always starts or ends or centers around the person called I. The focus on self is one of the primary and almost visibly seen characteristics of pop confession. It's always me, I, I receive, I believe, I have, I do. It's always about me. We don't hear Christ often. And even if you do hear Christ, Christ usually, listen, is the means to which me or I can have or do what I want or what I will. It's not that Christ becomes the focus of that confession. It's that Christ is the means to which I can get what it is I'm believing, I'm trusting. That is if they're actually trusting or they're affirming about. A lot of times it's not trust, it's affirmation. A lot of times you see that the focus on self is the first thing that comes out at you when you are talking about pop confession. Number two, often these pop confessions lack doctrinal value. I mean, literally what value can you glean from these confessions? I said earlier on that 2,000 years of church history taught us that confession was about the person of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, and the doctrines of the Christian faith. And so confessions, as long as Christianity was, or as from the beginning of time, had doctrinal value. In the Old Testament, literally the Shema was about the doctrine of God and the laws God gave to the people of Israel through Moses. In the New Testament, it's about the person of Christ and it's about the doctrines about the faith and about Christ as Lord and Messiah. It's all been about doctrine. But today's confession, how much doctrine can you glean from them? Number three, pop confession is a strategy that gets people out of trouble. In other words, first, it's strategic. And number two, it gets you out of a fix. And so we find out that a lot of people, they have situations, they have crises, they have circumstances they have to deal with. And when they seek counsel or listen to someone teach, what they often hear is, if you're in problems, confess your way out. 
Confessions are given as the way to get out of crises or situations. You hear people say things like, speak yourself out of a situation. Confess yourself out of that situation. It's always confess, confess, confess. I dare say that scripture teaches us what we need to do when we are in crisis. The Bible says, if any man is in trouble, let him pray. Scripture does not say, let him confess. But you find out that the character of pop confession is that they believe that it's a strategy to get one out of trouble. Now, let me go further. Number four, one of the characters of pop confession is that it is an exercise of spiritual authority that guarantees victory over negative situations. You find that a lot of times when they find themselves in a fix, their go-to is pop confession. And one of the scriptures that they use to butcher the thought is in the book of Revelations in chapter 12. I read from verse 10 and 11, Revelations chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That scripture often is used, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they use that term, the word of their testimony, to denote pop confession. In other words, because they confessed what they wanted, they were able to overcome the evil one. But if you read the context, it has nothing to speak about negative situation. Rather, that text was talking about the fight for our souls. And how that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, stands accusing us before God. And why does he do that? Because often or not we fall, we are humans. Often or not we struggle in the flesh in order to live right. And so when Satan stands in accusation to the brethren or of the brethren, the Bible says that we overcome the enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, we are dealing with things regarding sin and salvation. I taught the last episode, the book of Hebrews, where it expressly shared that the word of the testimony is referred to the confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we overcome the accuser of the brethren when we look to the blood of Jesus and by our confessing the Lordship of Christ. It has nothing to do with an exercise of spiritual authority that guarantees victory over negative situation. It has nothing to do with that. The last character of pop confession I want to talk about is the problem of pragmatism. It is the belief that it works. Those that engage in pop confession, always bear with it a certain level of confidence that it works. You will find out that those that confess, I have, I believe, there's always this vibe and this extra um, spring on their feet that what they're saying in itself has power and it will come to pass. Now, and some of the times, the reason why they have this confidence is because 
Sometimes it does seem that they come to pass. Sometimes somebody has a problem, instead of being praying, he gets to a place of confessing his way out of a problem, and he eventually gets out of that problem. The problem, however, is that he assumes that his confession got him out. Brothers and sisters, scriptures does not teach us to confess ourselves out of situation. It teaches us to pray and to trust God. And in the event, it does seem that confession worked. It was simply the providence and the mercies of God to us that worked. It wasn't our confession. In fact, the scripture says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What the Bible says works is prayer. It's not confession. So if you're talking about something working, the Bible teaches that prayer works. Confession does not work. At least, the confession I'm referring to here is pop confession. I believe I have it. I claim it. I receive it. They, they, they don't work. Okay. I know I'm rocking some boat here, but just stay with me. Don't switch off. There are five scriptures I'm going to share with us that a lot of those that are proponents of pop confession use to buttress this teaching. I'm going to show us from those scriptures, those same scriptures in their context and establish that those scriptures had nothing to say about pop confession. Second Kings in chapter 4 from verse 8 to 37 speaks of a story of a Shunammite woman. That woman was a godsend to prophet Elisha. And why is that so? Whenever Elisha traveled, the woman made sure because he'd actually had to pass in front of her house she made sure she prepared food for him. And at the point, she created a place in the house, a room for the prophet, that whenever he passed by, the prophet came and lodged. And the prophet was so blessed by this woman. One day, the prophet asked, what can I do for you? The woman said, I have need of nothing. I'm okay. The prophet's servant Gehazi said, Master, this woman doesn't have a child. And so the prophet prophesied that at such and such a time, you will have a child. And so the time came and the woman did have a son. The son grew up and one day the son was working in the fields with his father. And what happened was that he wasn't feeling too well and the father sent the son home. Upon reaching home, the child died. The woman asked the servant to get an ass to take her to see the prophet. The husband didn't know that the child was dead. And so the husband asked, why do you go see the prophet? Is Nana the Sabbath or the new moon? But the woman said, it shall be well. The prophet saw the woman and told Gehazi, go and ask the woman, is all well? Are you well? Is your husband well? Is your child well? And the woman answered, all is well. A lot of times we take the answer of the woman as textbook response to questions, particularly when we are going through difficult times. But we didn't stop there. When the woman eventually came to the prophet, the Bible says she grabbed the prophet's feet and wept. And she said to the prophet, in a Nigerian parlance, would say, I was on my own. Je, je. <laughs> in other words, I was on my own, 
when you asked me, do I need anything? I told you I didn't want anything. But you gave me a son. Now you have given me the son and you have taken the son away. In other words, she complained before the prophet. The prophet was moved. We know the story the prophet went ahead, prayed for the child, and the child came back to life. But what was instructive there was that every point that she said all is well and all will be well, she said it to the people that were of no consequence to solving her problem. And that was just a way of saying, don't disturb me, don't delay me, all is well. And she only said that so that she will not be delayed from her quest to see the prophet. When she came to the prophet, she did not say, all is well. And so that tells you clearly that that scripture is not text proof for the confessions that we hear, like all is well. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, somebody would want to say that, say to the righteous, it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Often and not, people use this text to say, say to the righteous, it shall be well with you. In other words, you always have to say, it is well. That is not what that text is saying. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying to someone, it is well with you. That can be a very good greeting. I mean, that can be the kind of greeting that is encouraging. But it is not a strategy that changes your situation. That's the problem. And this text, Isaiah the prophet, recounting what Yahweh said, said, Say to the righteous, it shall be well with you, for you will eat the fruit of your doing. And to the wicked, it shall be ill with you, for you will receive the reward that your hands have given you. So it wasn't telling us instructively to say to people, it shall be well with you. Because the only reason why it shall be well with the righteous is because of what he did. And the reason why it shall be ill with the wicked is because of what he too did. So that scripture had nothing to do with confessing it is well. Now, it is good to wish people well. When the Bible says that wish above all things that you prosper and be in health as a soul prospers, that's a good wish. That's a good prayer. And that's something that we will see that Christians have to imbibe the kind of speech that glorifies God. Now, Numbers in chapter 14, verse 28 and 29, God said, So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall, and every one of you twenty years old or more, who was counted in the census, and who has grumbled against me. God sent out spies to spy out the land of Canaan in preparation for the onslaught and the military campaigns that the Israelites were about to take. There were 12 of them. 10 came back with an evil report. And why did the Bible call it evil? Because they deliberately twisted facts to discourage the children of Israel. Whereas two of them, Caleb and Joshua, insisted that the people of God were well able to go in and overrun their enemies. The problem came when the Israelites believed the evil report and they 
began to wail. And they said so many things. They murmured, they complained. They said, God, wouldn't it be better that we were in Egypt and ate just the garlic and the cucumber? Moses, why did you bring us here to scatter our carcass in the desert? And God said to Moses, These ten times, these people have tested me. And because of what they have done, I will judge them. What I've heard them say, that will I do. And what was he talking about? He heard them say that it's better we had gone to Egypt than our bodies be scattered in the desert. So God said that we scattered their bodies in the desert. And none of them will see the promised land. Okay, some people believe this, that what you say, God uses for or against you. And they use this text. But this text is not normative. It's not the way God does things. If this is how God acts or relates with his people, all of us would literally be gone by now. But this was God judging the Israelites. And God said he had held on ten times. And God was declaring judgment upon the Israelites. And he said, what you have said, I'm going to make it happen. You are all going to die in the desert. It was not normative. You cannot use this scripture as text proof to teach that anything you say, God uses that against you. And that becomes your reality. Another scripture I want to talk about is the book of Joel in chapter 3 from verse 9 to 13. There's a popular line in that scripture that says, let the weak say I am strong. And so often or not, you hear a lot of Christians believing that if you're a Christian, you have to say the opposite of your reality. Joel chapter 3, I like to read so that we'll get some context to that scripture. Proclaim these among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Remember he said in verse 10, let the wicked say, I am strong. So some people believe that Saying, I am strong when you are weak, is what God instructs us to do. However, that text is telling us that God was about to judge all the nations that were cruel to Israel. And he said, even if the weakling among you rouses himself by saying, I am strong, upon coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat, I will judge every one of you. So that scripture is a scripture of judgment. In fact, it was actually saying that saying I am strong is irrelevant to what I will do in judgment to these nations. So that scripture has nothing to do with saying the opposite of your reality. I like to say this very importantly. Most Christians tend to believe that saying the opposite of their reality is what scripture teaches. But I've shown you and I will still show you some more that there's no place that teaches you to say the opposite of your reality. Because right now, it's so bad 
that most Christians, when they say A, you're not sure they mean A. Because often than not, they do not say what they mean. In the name of confession of faith, they say what they desire, not what is factual. They say what they want and not what is real. I mean, it's like living a, a life of euphoria. You are not tethered to reality. Any scripture that teaches you to deny reality, it's not the word of God. There was a joke somebody was about to get into an elevator and the lady he met in the elevator and he asked the lady, are you going down? And the lady said, I'm not going down with Jesus' name. <laughs> I mean, literally was like, I'm not going down with Jesus' name. The man was shocked. I said, I know. What I mean is the elevator going down. He said, I'm not going down. That's how most of us as Christians behave. No scripture teaches you to say the opposite of reality. And what scripture people believe teaches that is in the book of Job and chapter 22. From verse 28 and 29, I want to read it. It's very important. People believe that this scripture teaches to say the opposite of reality. That thou shalt also decree a thing and shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say there is a lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. People believe that this scripture says, say the opposite of your reality. That is not what it teaches. First off, who spoke? Was Eliphaz the Temanite? And all Eliphaz did was to tell Job that, if you read the entire chapter, that Job is because you sinned, you are going through what you are going through. If you repent from your sin, then you will decree a decree and it shall be established unto you and the, and the light shall shine upon your ways. In other words, the reason why you are going through what you are going through, why things are difficult and you are stressed, you are perplexed and you are vexed is because you sinned. And so if you live right and you make a decree, it shall be established. That was his theology. That was his thought. That was the way he perceived God. That if you live right, anything you say comes to pass. And the very next time he said, when there's a casting down, you shall say there's a lifting up and God shall what? save the humble person. Everything he said, first and foremost, was on the wrong context. Second and more important, he repented of everything he said. For a man that repented of his words, how then can we use these words as proof text for us to say the opposite of our reality and believing that because we say the opposite of our reality, God will make that happen for us. Besides, the person in question, the reason why he was going through what he was going through was because he was actually righteous, not because he was wicked. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us, read the Bible. The, the story of Job is an interesting piece, very interesting and very instructive. So Eliphaz the Tamite did not please God. Job had to pray for his three friends because God was angry with them. And somebody somewhere takes the book of Job 22 and believes that is how he should live. No, that's not normative. Please, let's look at the scripture in context. The Bible is clear about these things and God will grant us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. The fifth and the last scripture I'm going to talk about that people use incorrectly to buttress up confession 
is found in Mark chapter 11, 22 and 23. It's very important that we read this text. Much of popular confession of faith is premised on Mark chapter 11, 22 to 25. I'd like to read it and let us see what the scripture says or teaches. And I'll talk about it in context. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the context. Jesus went to the fig tree, did not see figs, and cursed the fig tree. The next day he walked by, and the apostles noticed that the fig tree that he cursed dried up from its roots, and they alerted Jesus to that development, and Jesus took the opportunity to teach them a very important principle. And what was that principle? It's what he said in verse 22. Have faith in God. If we had missed anything, do not miss the fact that the crux of the matter is what Jesus said in verse 22. Have faith in God. That is the crux of the matter. Look at verse 24. And Jesus went ahead to say, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, I shall not doubt in his heart, but believe what he says will come to pass, he shall have what he says. Look at verse 24. Therefore I tell you. Let me say something before I go further. The key principle behind the entire text is have faith in God. Then Jesus went ahead to give an illustration in verse 23 about speaking to the mountain and not doubting that that mountain will literally move because you believe. And in verse 24, Jesus goes down to reality and makes specific instruction. Verse 22 is the message. 23 is the illustration. 24 is the application. And Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Verse 23 is not the instruction. Verse 23, it says, I tell you, if anyone says to the mountain, it's hypothetical. If anyone says to the mountain, and do not doubt in your heart, it shall happen. It, it shows you the power of faith, that faith can literally move mountains. And it tells you the, the way to use that faith. It said, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, that is the instruction, pray. It said, believe that you have received it. In other words, when you pray, believe. Remember, the crux is having faith in God. The way to apply having faith in God is in prayer, not in confession. That is illustration about confession was to show the extent of faith not the way faith should be exercised. Verse 24 shows how faith should be exercised. Do not confuse the illustration with the instruction. Do not confuse the indicative 
with the imperative. The indicative is the story. The indicative is the example. The imperative is the instruction. God will not judge you by the indicative. He will not judge you by the illustration. He will judge you by the instruction. That is why you do not find another scripture that tells you to speak to the mountain. Anywhere in the New Testament. You don't see that scripture. In fact, you don't see that kind of example in the New Testament. But you see plenty, literally every book of the New Testament and the Old Testament that teaches you the place of prayer, the instruction to pray and to believe when you pray. So Mark chapter 11, 22 and 25 has nothing to do with speaking to mountains. It has everything to do with believing when you pray. That is why he says, therefore I tell you. That is instruction. And how do I know that? He repeats it. He buttresses it. He makes a context from it by saying in verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will forgive you your sins. In other words, it's not just praying and believing, praying, believing, and forgive. Jesus gives instructions in prayer, instructions about having faith in prayer by using the illustration of speaking to the mountain. It does not tell you to speak to the mountain. It tells you to believe when you pray. Pop confession is not a biblical teaching. Wow. Trusting God in prayer makes a whole lot of difference. You don't confess your word of situation. If any man is in trouble, let him pray. That is what the Bible teaches. Not let him confess. I believe strongly that a lot of times what we try to do as Christians in our bid to imbibe pop confession is to know how to speak in such a way that will glorify God. So Christian speech has certain characters. In the book of James and chapter 3, that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. In fact, it says a lot of things about how we must be careful with what we say. And verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we cross human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these should not be. James taught clearly that Christians cannot bless God with their tongue and in the same breath curse another human being that God made in his own image. In other words, your words must always be to the glory of God. Your words cannot be used to curse or to cause mayhem. Murmurers, backbiters, gainsayers, these are things we do with our mouth and they incur the judgment and the wrath of God. James chapter 3 verse 6, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and itself is set on the fire of hell. In other words, your words should not be words that are unwholesome. 
I find it especially difficult to understand how Christians can use foul language with straight face. You can't use a foul language as a Christian with a straight face and think that you are working with God. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, it said, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The context talks about evangelism and sharing your faith with someone, but the character of Christian speech should be words full of grace, seasoned with salt, far from deceit, from boastfulness, from lies, and all of the tongues evil. Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into one's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles him. And that's verse 11, I'm reading from verse 10, sorry. Now, verse 18, But the things that come out of the person's mouth comes from the heart, and these defile him. Jesus was telling the disciples that eating whatever comes into your mouth doesn't actually defile you, but what comes out of your mouth. And he established that the things that come out of your mouth actually comes out of your heart. I want to believe strongly that the reason why a lot of people do not speak wholesome, gracious words is because they don't have it in their heart. Scripture says, The world have I hidden in my heart, and I am now sin against thee. Psalms 119 verse 11. I believe your heart is the source of all good and wholesome words. But the Bible says that our hearts are exceedingly wicked. It said, There is none that seek God. There is none that looks for God. A sanctified lips is a product of a sanctified heart. Is your heart sanctified? Oh, how can your heart be sanctified? Your heart can be sanctified by believing in the Lord Jesus, by repenting of your sins, and trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because he died on the cross. He rose again on the third day to declare you righteous, if you believe. In conclusion, I'd like to share with us a true Christian confession is to confess Jesus as Lord. His death, his burial, his resurrection. Confess the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and more importantly, let your words be full of grace and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every man as he ought. It's not pop confession. It's not what we term confession of faith, and that all it has to do is me, myself, and I. True confession is about Jesus. It's about his word. And as Christians, our words should be gracious, should be blessed, should be full of encouragement, should be seasoned with salt to the glory of his name. Next time, I'm going to be talking with us about scripture, how we get the scripture, the teachings about the inspiration of the Bible, and how we can interpret the scripture the principle to which we can use to rightly interpret God's word. I know you had a nice time. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. Bye-bye. I'm sure you had a great time today, and you learned a lot of things. 
You can always engage us on our social media platform, Timeout with Akan, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter.